Welcome to Voices from the Past, a mini-podcast from Plymouth Plantation. We're taking you behind the scenes with the museum's historians, curators, artisans, and interpreters as they prepare to stage the 1623 wedding of Plymouth's Governor William Bradford to Alice Southworth. Today I'm speaking with Richard Pickering, Plymouth Plantation's Deputy Director, about this historical diplomatic event. Richard, despite the fact that the Bradford wedding has a small footprint in the written historical sources, it played a much larger role in the formation of key political relationships between Plymouth and Poconokid. That's one of the interesting things, Hillary, is that two of the most significant diplomatic events actually have a very small footprint in the written record. There's only one paragraph describing the first Thanksgiving in the fall of 1621, which is a moment when Native peoples in the English community are coming together and affirming diplomatic ties made earlier in March. New communities are there making their own diplomatic ties with Plymouth. And then in the summer of 1623, William Bradford marries for a second time. And Bradford doesn't leave us an account of his own wedding. It's a young man who's here for business purposes and writing to his older brother that describes the wedding that he visited. But what becomes clear is that Massasoit and the tremendous company of men, he, he brings about 120 men. He brings one of his wives with him. There are other native peoples here for the wedding. Again, overshadowing in numbers the English that are attending the wedding. It's a statement of sustained relations between Massasoit's community at Poconokit and the English community at Plymouth, and they've been through some very rough months in the previous two years. Massasoit had demanded that Squanto's head and hands be delivered to him by the English after Squanto had attempted to undermine Massasoit's influence. The English did not do it. And for a period of 18 months, there was no communication between Massasoit and the English. And then the English received news that there is a Dutch ship on the sand uh, near what is the current Massachusetts-Rhode Island border, and they decide, we want to have conversation with the Dutch. What are they doing here? How can we establish relations? And at the same time, they receive news that Massasoit, who is nearby that stranded ship, may be dying. And so they decide to go see him as well. And it's one of those pivotal moments in colonial history that Edward Winslow, John Hamden, Habamak, who was the Panisse Massasoit had sent to live among the English, being there at that moment, an English medicine seemingly saving Massasoit's life, after that moment, Massasoit warns the English at Plymouth of coming violence at the hands of natives northward in Massachusetts. And he advises them that they need to move quickly before the communities at Cape Cod and northward to Massachusetts can move against the English. And he tells them who needs to be taken out. Essentially, it's what Karen Kupperman, the great historian from NYU, says is a preemptive strike. And this preemptive strike is what we see in Edward Winslow's Good News from New England and uh, shorter excerpts in Bradford's History of Plymouth as the incident at Wessagusset Plantation with Thomas Weston, one of their former investors, who has essentially backed out of this financial deal and gone on to fund his own plantation. Is that correct? Exactly. And for many people, what's shocking is that Massasoit comes to this wedding 
with the head of one of the murdered men displayed on Plymouth Fort along with a bloody flag uh, made from when the man's head had been wrapped to bring back to Plymouth. People aren't remembering that this was a, a world of violence. Both cultures practiced, practiced death and dismemberment and display. And they're also overlooking the fact that Nana Pashmet, one of the great Wampanoag historians, said, what gets overlooked again and again is that Massasoit is orchestrating everything. It is not the English who determine when the first conversations will be had. It's Massasoit who determines when first contact will be had. It's Massasoit who advises the English what they need to do. He tells them who the leaders are and who needs to be taken out. And Nana Pashmet, uh, who unfortunately we lost very early uh, back in 1995 to, to diabetes, Nana Pashmet always said, after Wessagusset, we need to remember how Massasoit is stabilized. By making the English frightening to all of his neighbors, Massasoit's position is stabilized. His position as a sachem in New England. Yes. Can you describe for our listeners what a sachem is? It's a bit of a conflicting term. Right. A, a sachem, um, the more common term I think used by Americans is chief. Essentially, he's a community leader. Um, in looking backwards at Native peoples, we've sometimes put upon them a kind of federal image like they, they are indeed um, nations in the way the United States is a nation, when they're actually um, clusters of community with similar cultural traditions who are maintaining diplomatic relations among themselves. In 1616, epidemic wipes through New England, from contemporary Portland, Maine, to contemporary Providence, Rhode Island, there is a tragic epidemic lasting upwards of two years that is as devastating as the Black Death of 1348 in European history. And because of the massive death, and because some nations were unaffected by that death, power relations in southern New England shifted, and suddenly Massasoit was confronted with Narragansetts on one of his borders who could raise anywhere from 3,000 to 5,000 fighting men, and he now, after the epidemic, could only raise a few hundred. So he needed allies who were strong. He needed allies who were frightening and stabilizing. And so there are some historians who say, Massasoit's name doesn't appear in the English record for about 12 years. Does that mean he's unimportant? And Nana Pashman said, it needs to be remembered that there is no incident between Wampanoag peoples and Plymouth after Wessagusset for decades. And he said, it's the presence of stability and Massasoit being comfortable, which is probably why you do not see him named in the sources again, because the conditions are so stable between the native communities in the south and between southern native communities in Plymouth. And it needs to be remembered that the beaver trade is rising, 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 becoming ever more profitable and remunerative to Plymouth. And one needs to think of every beaver pelt as a human interaction. There's no way to get beaver pelt for sale back in Europe in the fashion industry by 
not having encounters with native peoples. So the day-to-day -day interactions are actually increasing. They're just less dramatic than appear in the historical record. And less violent and less here violent. in Massachusetts. So it seems from what you're saying that the Bradford wedding of 1623 is really a diplomatic victory that these two communities have come through this violence at Wessagusset and they uh, have also both, I, I presume, received news of the 1622 violence in Virginia to the south between yes. the English at Jamestown and the Powhatan Confederacy there, that this wedding is seems to be a centerpiece of um, reaffirming the relationship between these two communities, reestablishing diplomatic ties, reestablishing communication, which had been lost for more than a year, and cementing this new relationship moving forward. I don't think it's, it's a coincidence that this also coincides with the arrival of the Anne and the Little James, which not only brings the bride, Alice Southworth, but brings almost 100 new community members. Do you think this is on Massasoit's mind as well, that he sees the English presence is growing um, and that more and more people are coming over, they're getting, they're preparing to spread out uh, as when the business contracts are done, they are going to spread out from the main street that we interpret here at Plymouth Plantation. Is Massasoit cognizant of all this and is that playing a role in this wedding as well? I wonder how much there is a sense of spreading out on the land and whether anyone can conceive of it yet where it hasn't been done. Hmm. Um, no one I, has made a permanent settlement. Plymouth is the first in New England to be a, a year-round community as opposed to a seasonal fishing station. Yes, and Nana Pashma used to say we always need to remember that at the time of the first Thanksgiving, and now that you bring it up, Hillary, thinking about it at Governor Bradford's wedding as well, no one knows the juggernaut that is coming in 1630. Boston. All, all of these people have no idea that Boston will be coming and that between 1630 and 1642, it's estimated between 18,000 and 25,000 English men, women, children, furnishings, livestock arrive. That in this first decade, no one could have seen that coming and how that population pressure and the pressure on the land is going to complicate relations that are complicated in the beginning with people who don't know each other well, but do not yet have the pressure of land stress on them. Thinking about land and, and English communities here in, in North America, there's another diplomatic wedding that goes on in North America. Um, Pocahontas is arguably one of the most famous native figures in American popular culture, and her marriage to Virginia planter John Rolfe in 1614, two years before this epidemic, uh, almost a dec more than a decade before William Bradford's wedding, also creates essential diplomatic ties between the English and a, a native tribal nation. Mm -hmm. um, what important correlations do you see between these two state weddings? And do you see weddings or marriages continuing to play a role in English-Native relations as the century continues? Well, of course, when Pocahontas dies so young in England, that destabilizes what is happening in Virginia. And there's generational change among the native leadership as well, and the desire to push back. And so the wedding, I think, captivates the English imagination in particular, the way that she's received when she makes her tour of England. But her death 
uh, exacerbates the violence that has been there in Virginia since the very beginning. John Pory, who was the secretary for the Virginia Company, is called back to London to answer charges of malfeasance and of charging exorbitant rates for processing licenses and other fees. John Pory comes to Plymouth on his way back to England and visits for a while. And his letter describing Plymouth exists. And one of the things that he talks about is the lack of violence here. And that must have been shocking to a Virginian to come to a place where there was so little violence after the devastation in Virginia, not only in the massacre of 1622, but all of the fighting that had been going on since 1607. But I don't see marriages, at least in Plymouth Colony, playing a role in relations between Native communities and the English communities after the governor's second wedding. I have no idea whether similar things happened in Massachusetts Bay, but uh, one of the great historians, Alden Vaughn, has said it's very interesting when you look at the first decade of English settlement and how accomplished Plymouth was in its relations with Native people. And as long as Massachusetts Bay followed Plymouth's example, they got along well. But as soon as they began to follow their own instincts, which seemed to be so very different than the diplomatic strain in Plymouth, that's when Massachusetts begins to enter into violence with Native peoples. So let's return to our, our recreation of the 1623 Bradford wedding. You've mentioned Emmanuel Altham, who writes the letter with the to, uh, roughly two paragraphs that describes the event. Mm -hmm. uh, for our listeners, can you walk us through the process when Plymouth Plantation sets out to recreate an event like this? Where do we start? Uh, you have to go, not to make a theatrical comparison, but you have to go from the page to the stage. You need to figure out how many people are required for accurate representation. You need to figure out how they will be dressed breaking down the circumstances of the day. The bride has been here only a few weeks. Did she plan what she would be wearing? These are all choices the costume historian has to make as to, is this a new dress? Is it a dress that she already has? Has the governor gotten a new suit delivered in the last shipment of supply? Uh, the food historian needs to look at the food details that are in the description, and we know there are venison pasties that are served because the Wampanoag bring deer as gifts for the governor and, and the new Mistress Bradford. So it's thinking through everything in three-dimensional detail and then how to do it in a way that is um, understandable within the guest's experience so that the actual event may have been a bit longer. Our guests typically are only here for two hours of their lives, and a visit to the English village may just be a portion of that. How do we give them a glimpse of the event that's meaningful and understandable? Aside from Altham's two paragraphs in his letter to his brother, do we have any other sources that talk about the Bradford wedding, an English or native? Not that I know of, I believe. We would have no details on this wedding at all. Um, 
Bradford's grandchildren were using much of his writings to wrap fish in in their fish market in future generations. So we have no idea what's been lost to us. Uh, Bradford does not write about either one of his wives, his first wife's death or the marriage to his, his second wife. There is an interesting little note in the Bradford manuscript when he's teaching himself Hebrew. He makes a reference to loving the wife of your youth. But what does that mean? But he, other than that, does not write about his wives. Now, Bradford's history of Plymouth is arguably our primary, primary source. Uh, it is our frame of reference for so much of the history of, of early Plymouth up through the middle of the 1640s. And if this wedding is such a key diplomatic moment, it's, it would, it's such a coup for Bradford um, and in his diplomatic relations with Massasoit, why would he omit it, omit it from his own history of the plantation if it's playing such a pivotal role in the, in the relationship between Poconocket and Plymouth? He might not see it that way because he's in the event. Uh, Hindsight's twenty twenty. Right, exactly. It's like when people kept saying to Ray Bolger and Jack Haley, we'll buy you the scarecrow costume, we'll buy you the Tin Man's outfit, and they're, we don't want them. Uh, it's projecting values on someone else's experience. People so love the Wizard of Oz, they wanted the scarecrow and the Tin Man to own their costumes. Had you made that film and gone through the horror of its production and getting that film made, you might not want that bag of rags and that box of tin. Uh, this, I, this, so this single, single source syndrome, uh, we have one reference, we have two paragraphs from one letter, one man's perspective, it's an English man's perspective. What challenges does this pose to us as historians and to the museum in recreating this event? Well, I, I think when you have the chance to talk to Darius, getting Darius's perspective on how, as a Wampanoag historian, he enters the source and brings his own cultural knowledge to reading through descriptions. Usually cultural insights that, uh, as English historians, we would not necessarily bring to the table. Essentially. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, there's a very sensitive question that we, we talk about a little bit here at Plymouth Plantation, and that is this, the question of native slavery. Mm -hmm. And last year, 2014, marked the 400th anniversary of the kidnapping and enslavement of Tisquantum. There is a wonderful exhibit, I believe it's out at out on Cape Cod now, about the kidnapping and enslavement yeah. of Tisquantum and Epinone and other native men from the Cape Cod area. And we know that Altham writes in his letter, I craved a boy of him, Massasoit, for you, his brother, but he would not part with him, but I will bring you one hereafter. This is a diplomatic event, and yet there is an obvious reference to enslavement of native people. So how do we balance these two conversations mm -hmm. about diplomatic relations, improving relations with Native people, with this conversation that's also simultaneously going on about enslavement of Native people? And if we forecast a little bit, we know that after King Philip's War, many Wampanoag people, including King Philip's son and wife, will be sold into slavery in the Caribbean. How can we as a museum tread both of these mm -hmm. narratives simultaneously? Well, that's why it's important to have a mixture of first-person representation, meaning role players recreating the lives of colonial and native people, and then also having third-person or a modern voice presence that can be there helping the guest 
understand what they're seeing represented. And to say all English people are of one mind uh, oversimplifies it. I can only imagine Governor Bradford's horror and embarrassment once he knows that encounter has happened between Emanuel Altham and Massasoit. Because again and again, the English who are living on the land with Native people comment on their tenderness toward their children and the extreme level of affection. And we know that the Council for New England was horrified when Thomas Weston's brother sent a Native child back into England the previous year, and they ordered him returned to Wessagusset. So you have the recent memory of Thomas Weston's brother stealing a child and sending him into England, and that child being sent back by the Council for New England and reprimanding Weston. And then the second event of a newcomer who does not understand the realities of the culture. What would have been the appeal for an English gentleman like Altham's brother or Thomas Weston's brother of bringing a native child back to London? Just a curiosity from the New World? or I, I think so. That uh, There's also the possibility of raising up a child that knows native language that could, as Tisquantum did, move between two worlds because of his experience of England and his mastery of the English language and of understanding English desires, if you had a child that was raised in England but knew native culture and language, he could become incredibly value in terms of trade and negotiating native communities. And there is, but as you said, Hillary, there's the tradition of the curiosity. And I think it's in The Tempest, one of the characters said, oh, anyone would pay 10 pay to see a dead Indian because captive natives have been put on display in England for money. And we know from Shakespeare as well, his play Othello, we know that England is more ethnically and racially diverse than we might perceive it to be. Certainly London is very cosmopolitan, so seeing native people, seeing Africans, people from the Middle East would be a much more common sight than we might we might think. Yes. So for those folks out of London uh, who were coming to the New World, they may have seen Native people before, but for many of the wedding guests or, or members of the community who were not invited to sit at the table at this diplomatic event, this might be their first encounter with Native people. Yes. What do you imagine that experience was like for these rural, rural English newcomers that come to New England? They're here for two, three weeks, and the first thing they see is 120 Native people come and, into town. And 120... Native people who are presenting themselves in their very finest because of the ceremonial nature of it all. I can only imagine what first encounters were like, whether it's Samoset walking into town by himself and the colonist's reaction to the fringe that he's wearing about his middle, or seeing painted men for the first time when Massasoit appears with his train of men in March of 1621, but to see the number of men and dressed as impressively as they were, Altham writes about the black wolf skin that Massasoit was wearing. He writes about the amount of wampum that he was wearing as well. So that uh, it's probably almost unfathomable for us to try to recreate that first impression. And England in the 17th century was a very... Um, ritualistic society, 
folks living in London saw processionals all the time. Mm -hmm. We know that the great historian Smuts talks a lot about processionals and processions of the Stuart Kings, processions, of course, of Queen Elizabeth. Her progressions throughout her court, throughout her kingdom, were infamous. And to come to New England and see this uh, might be familiar on some level. You know because they're processing that they are important people in their community. But I can imagine, just like going to any foreign country, you see a display of power and prestige of this sort would be unsettling, even if you were familiar with the concept. Uh, I know we're running out of time, so I'd like to just turn the table a little bit to, uh, to talk about weddings in particular. We've talked a lot about the international relationship around this wedding, some of the more difficult questions, um, but I want to talk about weddings in particular with the English cultural landscape. Can you talk a little bit for our, our listeners about the role marriage played in English, English society? We know marriage is commonplace. It's a prescribed rite of passage. How does it change when it comes to New England? It's a rite of the church in England uh, that you're getting married by a minister at certain times of the year. Sometimes it's prohibited for reasons of the church calendar or reasons of the agricultural calendar. But here in New England, it's a civil matter from day one. The Reformed Christians who had worshipped in Holland and who brought their church here to New England felt that there was no biblical justification for ministers making marriages. That if you looked at the fourth book of Ruth, Ruth's marriage to Boaz is made by the two of them. It's merely blessed by the elders. It's not made by the church elders. And Christ was a guest at the wedding at Cana. He chose to perform his first miracle there. He didn't make the marriage. And so Reformed Christians argued, this has nothing to do with the church. And don't burden a minister with duties that aren't scripturally prescribed. So they felt it was a legal agreement for reasons of legitimacy and the transfer of property between a man and a woman. It wasn't that God wasn't present. Everything is entered into with prayer, but the act of the marriage being made was done by civil authority. So in addition to the first glimpse of Native people, for some newcomers to Plymouth, it's going to be the first time they've ever seen a civil ceremony. And I've sometimes wondered whether the colonists that were here who were not part of the Church of England and who married in colonial Plymouth, did they feel truly married? Because not being married in the tradition of the Church of England. Exactly. And it is controversial. In 1634, Edward Winslow has to return to England, and he is answering questions about marriage in Plymouth in front of the Bishop of London, the same man who would ultimately become Charles's Archbishop of Canterbury. William, is that William Laud? William Laud. So, what, I'm just out of curiosity, what were Archbishop Laud's uh, concerns about the marriages? They just weren't legal or they weren't correct in the eyes of God? Uh, William Laud was one of those who adored ceremony. And though Protestant in mentality, he was very Catholic in his love of ceremony and ritual and retained tradition. So he had strong concerns about the marriage not being made in the church. And even though Winslow said, I have made marriages in 
Plymouth as one of the assistant governors, we also have no minister. The legal realities that there is no minister. Not only would we not make marriages by our ministry, we don't even have a minister that could make a marriage right now. And so Winslow is imprisoned for a while. And that's how he ultimately is sort of, he gets stuck in England during the Civil War. He does. And ultimately, is he appointed to be governor of Jamaica or Barbados? He's part of the, the group of men charged with capturing Hispaniola from the Spanish mm -hmm. and will ultimately die of dysentery off the coast. And his marriage to Susanna White is, of course, the first marriage in Plymouth, the, one of the few we have an actual date for. William Bradford does record that wedding. Mm -hmm. Ironic, he doesn't record his own, but he does record Winslow's wedding to Susanna White. And they spend very little time together. He's a, uh, not only the governor on, for several years, but he also goes back to England. Was it common that these marriages were done for um, reasons of property or legitimacy and therefore sort of operated in two separate spheres? Was that common? I'm not sure what you mean. We have Edward Winslow, who is serving in a political and an ambassadorial capacity. He goes back and forth to England as the business representative of the company. He spends the majority of his marriage to Susanna White not living in the same house with her. Uh -huh. Was that common for people of this station, or was this just a product of it's living on the frontier and needing that relationship with England. A product of, of living on the frontier that they are separated so long. And uh, Laurel Ulrich uh, has talked about the idea of the deputy husband mm -hmm. and that women became accustomed to stepping into their husband's roles in their absence without a loss of their femininity and none of their neighbors criticizing them. But you think of a household in the seven, in 17th century New England as its own little government with the man being the head of that household and when he is absent, when his duties call him away, his wife can step in as the, the deputy governor. And like Edward and Susanna's marriage in 1621, this is a second marriage for William Bradford and Alice Southworth. Yes. Um, what can you tell us briefly about second marriages and how are they, are they different from first marriages or is it how, how do they culturally fit in? I think what's going to be a distinction between first and second marriages in the 17th century and first and second marriages in the contemporary world is the role of death. That in the 17th century, the second marriage is not being made by divorce. It's being made by death. The challenges of creating a family for the new husband and wife are very different we are unaccustomed to sending our children away to live in other people's houses as servants or as apprentices, or sending them off to our parents so that the second marriage can achieve its own identity and raise its own children. It's one of the things that sets historic marriages apart from contemporary marriages is that the relationships are very different. Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast, Voices from the Past. If you're interested in learning more about the Bradford wedding, uh, it'll be Saturday, August 15th. You can always visit our website, www.plymouth.org, to learn more. And we hope to see you at the wedding again Saturday, August 15th. Thank you for joining us.